The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before listening to the podcast. New episodes air Tuesdays at 10pm on FX. Join us every week after the show. The idea of the Niles character was you take Frasier and then you come up with a character who has all of Frasier's problems, neuroses and everything else, who's more that than him. And really, that's what Twan is to Elizabeth. Welcome to the Americans podcast for season five. I'm June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts and your host for the series, which goes behind the scenes of the show. Today, we'll be talking about episode 512, World Council of Churches. Later, we'll hear more from my interview with producing director Chris Long about the experience of filming in Russia. But first, here are showrunners Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg, And just to explain one reference in the interview, I should just mention that Weisberg is a former CIA officer. Today, I'm in glamorous Gowanus, Brooklyn, with Joe Weisberg, the creator of the show. Hi, Joe. Hi, June. And his co-showrunner and co-executive producer, Joel Fields. Hi, Joel. Hey, June. Would you like a job with the World Council of Churches? I would love one, especially (laughs) in Buenos Aires. We could arrange that for you. Really? Absolutely. I was very curious about that. You know, I I don't know sometimes if I'm too literal about the things that you all have happened. But did the Soviet Union really have such extensive contacts with social justice and faith groups that it could have gotten someone a job with, for example, the World Council of Churches? They did, and they could have. Who knows? (laughs) Well, I think what we can say is that they had a lot of KGB agents inside a number of religious and peace organizations. Not KGB officers, Uh to clarify, but KGB agents, people who had been recruited and who worked for them. This is, I think, a great moment for you, Joe, to explain to our listeners of the podcast the difference between a KGB agent and a KGB officer. A KGB officer is a Russian or Soviet who grew up in the Soviet Union and was hired by the KGB to work for them, much as an American would grow up here and be hired by the CIA to work for the CIA and do a job for the CIA. Maybe what kind go, of person would do that? What kind of person would do that? Maybe go abroad and recruit spies. That's a CIA officer. Uh-huh. Now, a KGB officer or a CIA officer then recruits spies to spy for them. And those people that they recruit are usually but not always, but usually foreigners, Mm -hmm. and those are agents. Mm -hmm. So if a KGB officer, a Soviet working for the KGB, goes and recruits some person working at the World Council of Churches to be a spy inside Mm -hmm. the World Council of Churches, Mm -hmm. that's a KGB agent, not an officer. This is an interesting place where the rules, some of those rules I just said don't apply because it was sometimes priests inside the Russian Orthodox Church, Uh for example, who were KGB agents. So in that case, they would have been actual Russians. But they were still recruited. Isn't the idea that anybody who's a, who's they, a non-trained yes. spy who's recruited they by an officer is an agent? So right. James Bond, for example, agent or officer? Officer. Officer. Very good. He is yeah. not a secret agent. Man. <laughs> not a That's secret right. agent man. That's right. The, Often called an agent, yeah, but he's The an secret officer. agent man of the song, actually. Officer. Secret agent officer. Officer. Not as good a song title, but more accurate. <laughs> secret officer. Yeah, that's not good. Martha. Poor Martha. 
agent. agent. Martha's an agent. Gotcha. Nina, interestingly, an oh, agent sure. and an officer. Oh. She's an officer, <laughs> but when she was recruited by Stan, she became an agent. And then when she doubled back on him, she was an officer again. And then. That's the way it goes. Poor Nina. Yeah. Well, we should clarify there. Yeah. We don't know that there are cases of them getting people jobs like this. That was a little bit of our but elaboration have, from the fact that they had not just power, but sometimes real control over yeah. some of those organizations. It's we, we think it's fair to speculate that they could have. Yeah. Yeah. The conversation between Pastor Tim and Philip and Elizabeth feels very frank. I mean, the joke, which is strange for them, they give them a, a gag gift. It's surprisingly unguarded because, okay, they're leaving, but just because they're not there, that doesn't mean he couldn't give them away. I think what? part of their thinking is the more frank they are, the more they connect with him, the more that helps, uh, he won't want to give them up. Uh, they uh, establish more of a bond. And and also, to whom else can they speak about this? Yeah, yeah. He knows them more intimately than anyone does, and he knows their daughter more intimately than anyone does, and he can... He he can be of help. So this is this is a situation where they may actually get some help, and they're cementing their connection to him, which also, to the extent that one can gamble on these things, probably does better ensure he won't give them up. I mean, they've also seen things that he can't know that they've seen, where he, they've seen his diary. They know what he really thinks, which makes it all the more complicated. Tuan. In this episode, we've seen him be scary before, but in this episode, he's terrifying. He's cold. He's willing to sacrifice Pasha for the cause. And that would be the right call for a truly dedicated spy. But the contrast with Philip, it makes Philip's inaction at this point, his inability to act, seem much more rational because Tuan's commitment is really, really scary. You know, you've talked over the season about the usefulness of Tuan, but in this case... His usefulness seems... He's hardcore. He's so You can't hardcore. say he's not hardcore. He certainly thinks the ends justify the means. <laughs> and he has such self-certainty. He's sure, well, it doesn't matter. he doesn't care if Pasha dies, but he's pretty sure he won't because he's, he's in control. The plan works either way as far as he's concerned. Right, right. And the truth is, it's a terrible reality, but if you're Tuan and you're a soldier and you're on the battlefield... You can't afford to be worrying about everybody who might get hit by some trap. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. you want to get the job done. Mm-hmm. You know what makes me think of? I don't. I can't believe we never talked about this before, Joel. But uh, Joel used to tell the story of uh, Frasier because he's friends with the guy, one of the creators of Frasier. That the idea of the Niles character was you take Frasier and then you come up with a character who has all of Frasier's problems, neuroses, and everything else, who's more that than him. Oh and really, that's what Twan is to Elizabeth. Yeah, that's true. Yes, the yeah. Fraser of Cheers yeah. was the outlier character, right. and so h- how did they normalize him? They created somebody who was more of an outlier, and uh-huh. yeah, he's our Niles. <laughs> that's amazing. Thank you, David Lee. <laughs> Subconsciously gave us Tuan. <laughs> I was surprised, to say the least. Speaking of hardcore, when Philip appeared prepared, he was prepared to blow the whole operation, and maybe even not just this particular Eckert's operation with Alexei and the Maritzovs and everything, but his life's operation. Because apart from anything else, it goes against his training, which we've seen many times over the seasons, has become absolute second nature to him. I mean, he's been saying, 
I can't keep doing this. You have to admit, he's been warning everybody and himself. It's not like a surprise, but you're right. It's not just that he's risking blowing his operation or his life's operation. He's risking blowing his and Elizabeth's life. Yeah. One slip up in front of the CIA officer and it, it all falls apart. Right. I think it's very hard in that situation for him, maybe impossible to evaluate the risk he's taking. Mm -hmm. It's it, There's really no way to know if he goes into this, what might happen, what all the possibilities are and how they could be handled and how he might or might not get out of them. Mm -hmm. All that's clear is that it's a big risk. Yeah. Now let's hear from Chris Lung. I got to attend a production meeting for episode 512, which was directed by Nikki Casal. Correct. But you were there. Yes. What were you there for and what were you kind of listening for? Once we get to the production meeting, that really is the final meeting where everything is settled. Often mm -hmm. people think a production meeting is the start of a process or it's where things are figured out. It's actually the end of the production process. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like putting the final pieces in place. The concept meetings and the creative meetings, like the tone meetings, mm -hmm and the tech scouting and the individual department meetings have already taken place. We went through that script and it's pretty much Michelle, who's our first AD, was just tying up the nuts and bolts saying mm -hmm. we need this, this, and this for this scene. It's just a sort of like group reminder. Yeah. And then I think we got to the factory scene. Yes. And then we talked extensively about the factory scene for mm -hmm. a long time. You know, we showed the pictures to Joel and Joe and they wanted to make sure it was a certain type of factory. And so we were being very careful on how to realize that vision. Yeah. We were just sort of racing through it. And Michelle was like, almost like a laundry list of things that, yeah. were, that was like, check, 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 check. And suddenly um, we were into like a much larger sort of concept discussion on it. Because that particular space had only been found pretty close toward that meeting. So you wanted to check, right. can we do this? Is there room for right. that kind of machinery? Or right, exactly. We wanted to, you know, we were discussing what type of factory it would be in yeah. the Soviet Union. And uh, um, what's interesting is they have these really large, I'm probably using the wrong word, but like heating factories. Yeah. Whereas I think in New York, we tend to have individual houses yeah. have their own boiler in the basement or whatever. Not so much in the Soviet Union. Apparently they have these enormous factories, boilers, whatever, that service parts yeah. of the community. And they really look like the place that we shot. Yeah. Um, ours was actually a sewage treatment place, <laughs> but it actually looked like this thing. And uh, when we were actually looking for a stock shot of the place, which we shot in Moscow, a guy we contacted in Moscow said, the inside looks exactly like one of these things with the exterior of these buildings, these heating buildings that have these large smokestacks and yeah, things yeah. like that. As you mentioned earlier, you filmed in Russia this season. How did that come about? We knew we had this unique opportunity with uh, Oleg's storyline. Talked about it a little bit, Joe, Joel and I, at the end of last season. So as the uh, scripts and storylines came out for the, for the season, it became obvious there was a, a good opportunity because Oleg was going to be on his own quite mm. a bit, out waiting to meet various surveillance officers. We thought it'd be rather a good idea to try and broaden the scope of the show by going to do it. And we, could, we felt we could do it with a very small unit because we didn't really require sound. We just had one actor, Costa, with mm -hmm. us, who was very game to do it, guerrilla style. And so we decided, decided to put together a budget and we, we uh, reached out and we found this wonderful production company in Moscow called Bazarus, who helped us achieve this. So I went over there and I, the only person I took was the post PA, whose name is uh, Venya, mm. uh, downstairs who speaks Russian. Yeah. And he's the only one I took, and Costa. And we went there and we picked up a crew and we shot a whole bunch of exteriors with Oleg Costa mm -hmm. wandering mm -hmm. around the city, looking over these wonderful bridges. It was interesting because they were taking us to really sort of 
of the production company mm -hmm. kept taking us to really cliched views because they were used to shooting commercials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everybody wanted to go there and shoot Red Square, Onion Domes, like, Onion Domes, and yeah. things like that. And we, of course, wanted to to be a little more subtle about it. So it was a it was funny. <laughs> the first night we were scouting, it took me to every tourist site uh -huh. that Moscow had, and I got some lovely snaps. Um, <laughs> but we didn't use any of that in the show. We just found uh, these really interesting parks and these interesting places where, if you knew Moscow you would know that there's no other place we could be mm. but in Moscow. Mm. But it's very subtle. You could confuse some of it for Brooklyn, I guess, yeah, if you yeah. didn't know. So we do have the uh, the beautiful shot in episode 512 where we're standing on a bridge looking out over the city with the Kremlin mm -hmm. and St. Basil's in the background. You've been playing Brooklyn for Moscow for so many years. Did it kind of make you think, oh, we've had it wrong or... No, actually, no. It was, what was interesting was that I was trying to find nooks and crannies that didn't look like Brooklyn in <laughs> Moscow. They also would take me to some place where I'd say, "Yeah, this looks like Brooklyn," or "It looks like the Upper East Side." Yeah. So, so let's not let's not be here. One day in the van in Moscow when we were scouting, I had uh, some clips we shot uh -huh. here in Brooklyn and on the Upper East Side, and the crew, the Russian crew, were looking at it, uh -huh. and they were very complimentary about it. Not just to me in English, but Venya, my uh, cosplay, who was sitting in the back. I asked him later on what they were saying uh -huh, to each other, chatting uh -huh, about it. Uh -huh. And he said they were very complimentary about it. So I felt good about that. Yeah. I felt good that we were uh, fooling uh, real uh. Russians, real Moscovites. Now you say that, I'm reminded how Philip and Elizabeth, in one of the scenes earlier in the season, are with the Muratsovs and Tuan. And the Muratsovs speak in Russian. And of course, we know that Philip and Elizabeth understand them. And afterward, Twan says, what did they say? And the thing that you described just in that answer is kind of a similar, you know, where you're listening, you know that someone else can understand. In many ways, your job seems like Philip and Elizabeth's, like they don't get credit for the things that they do until right. something goes wrong. And I think, especially in television, the director, it's almost like an invisible job. Right. Are you okay with being invisible? Yes. Being invisible to the process is really, I think, what it's about. I don't think you ever want to watch something and know that it's written, acted or directed. Yeah. And everything gets confused between the three. Often in film and television, somebody will get enormous credit for something. And really, it, it's not that person. It yeah. can be an actor can be a brilliant performance, but the writing can be brilliant. Yeah. Or the writing could not be that great. And the actor could elevate the material. There are yeah. some actors out there that could read the phone book, yeah. and it would be interesting. Yeah. And then the director gets credit for something that is, you know, so, so it's a very fine line between everything, between mm -hmm. the writing, the directing and the acting mm -hmm. and, and where that credit belongs for everything. I hope that the directing is invisible to the mm -hmm. process once, once somebody sees it. I hope that people sit there and go, hey, somebody directed that <laughs> because that means I'm doing my job well. So I'm not consciously aware that I'm doing shots, doing anything in the process that will consciously take you away from and or take you out of that process. Yeah. Because, you know, for me, it just needs the whole process needs to be as natural as possible yeah. Yeah. and demystified as possible. Thanks to Joe Weisberg, Joel Fields and Chris Long for talking episode 512 for me. Thanks also to Ethan Simon for recording assistance and to the Americans Sarah Nolan for her organizational help. Please join us next week when we'll be talking about the finale. I'll be joined by Kerry Russell and Matthew Reese, among many other special guests, so please don't miss it. I'm June Thomas. This show is part of the Panoply Network.